This show comes to you from the Art of Change Skills for Life. Visit www.artofchange.com to explore how you might grow your communication and leadership skills through workshops, coaching, and more. Plus, you get to work with me. My guest is an actor, director, and stage skills coach from San Antonio, Texas, who has been improvising for audiences both nationally and around the world for 29 years. With specialties in improvised musical theater, grounded and character-driven scene work, he has coached hundreds of kids, teens, students, adults for years to multiple performance successes. He's also super active in the PTA, and none of that is why I invited him here today. I often invite guests because of their notoriety, who they are, what they do, their interest to you. But the guest I've invited today is my friend, and I know his story, or at least I think I do. And I remember when everything changed. My guest is Esteban J. Chewy Sarate. I'm Aiden Nipom. This is The Changed Podcast. Welcome to the show, Chewy. Oh, thank you so much. What a great introduction, man. Golly, you are so professional. <laughs> thank you. Um, well, I mean, I first of all, thank you for being here. I mean, it's, sure. uh, you know, it's the, the world is what it is. I don't know what else you Ugh. would have had planned, but you are very active with your kiddos. And so uh, I appreciate your time. Oh, my, my pleasure. Sundays are always good. Uh, I don't want to break the fourth wall, but it is a Sunday. Uh, but, uh, they're usually less busy than most. So that's a, yeah, you know, and, and, uh, uh, you know, I'll make time for you, Aiden. You kidding me? <laughs> um, for, uh, for listeners, Chewie and I have known each other for a number of years. I haven't done any math. I'd have to actually think about it and do Probably some around subtracting, 10. but it might be 10. Um, but we taught together, uh, mm-hmm. at the improv school where I used to teach in Austin and we, uh, have been on stage together many times. So we oh, have yeah. an improv connection. For sure. Um, but we've also been in other places in the world at the same time because of both being traveling performers. That's true. We, uh, we were in Alaska together. Uh, yeah. The, uh, the festival up there in Juneau. And you and your troupe were nice enough to actually ask me, or I, I kind of bullied my way in to performing with y'all that, <laughs> that time. It was fantastic. I had one of the best times I've ever had on stage. Chewie, you sing like an angel. Oh, um, shut it. You, you. No, you say okay. it. Well, you we, sing like that? an angel. That's actually one of the few shows I remember ev- almost everything that happened during it. Because I'm not a big, I, like, when I go on stage, my eyes kind of roll back in my head. And then afterwards, people tell me, wow, that was so funny that you did that. I was like, what did I do exactly? I don't remember. I really don't yeah. remember a lot of things, but I remember that one just because it was such a funny setup, like this butcher who was giving STDs to all the all the ladies in the neighborhood. <laughs> and it's, it's really the 1950s, so and we have to 50s, like dance yeah. around it. Yeah, yeah, and and that scene where the two of y'all are talking about it, but not talking about. It. There was a scene where you're like, oh, uh, yes, but no. Uh, y'all just stuttered <laughs> yeah. for like I don't know three minutes. It was hilarious. Uh, I was dying on the side. I mean, I guess you had—you probably had to be there. That's one of the things that's so magical, uh, magical about the art form of improv in theater is that, like, that show only ever happens once, based on a yeah. single suggestion from the audience. It never happens again, and so you're like you. I often forget what 
happened because it's like, you know, like right. in a conversation, you remember the gist of what was said, but you don't always remember mm -hmm. what was actually said. Yeah. Uh, but I remember a, a lot more from that particular show than I do from many others. Uh, could be because I've watched the video. Oh, you've seen the video. Yeah, I never I never did see the video of it, I don't think. I hate going back and watching myself on stage. So it's Do like, you? I really do. I probably won't even listen to this uh, later on because <laughs> I can't stand my voice. You say I sing like an angel, but in my head, it's just like, what note are you on, idiot? <laughs> like, really? like, yeah, really. I don't know. It's some sort of self-doubt thing in me that I can't shake, that I just can't stand looking at myself because I'll be so critical. Back when I thought I was going to try and be on Saturday Night Live. Oh, um, yeah, those days. I remember those. Before my experience of being a cast member at Esther's Follies uh, when I was like, oh, this is like a third of the amount of pressure of Saturday Night Live. If I can't, <laughs> if I can't handle this, there's no way I can handle that. Yeah. Um, and so I changed directions. But um, back at that time, like I was taking all kinds of workshops for trying to be comfortable on camera and just putting a camera in front of me, like flop sweat, just like and yeah. stuttering and like, it was very uncomfortable. So, you know, this this podcast and putting it onto YouTube and editing all of it has really helped me feel totally comfortable <laughs> on camera in a way I never uh, could do before, before this project. Well, see, that's it's one like... of the positive things about this whole virus thing. Sure. Quarantine, we've had to get a little more comfortable with cameras, haven't we? Because you don't get to see yeah, people that's true. in person. So, Would you be willing to prove to the audience that you're an, a singer? Okay. Because <laughs> would I'd... you like... Okay, you just want me to sing something is what you're saying? Yeah, well, you just, will you, because, well, and maybe, maybe this is just selfish on my part. I love oh, hearing you sing. Okay. Uh... <laughs> if you ever change your mind about leaving, leaving me behind, oh, bring it to me. Bring your sweet love and bring it on home to me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I love that song. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Uh, I Thank guess you, I wasn't Chewy. so bad. Thanks. I, I mean, I, I fronted a band for God's sake, and I still worry about my voice all the time. Like my whole excuse whenever I was in the band was like, okay, I'm singing, but they, they can't really hear me over the music. It's good. The musicians are great. I'll be fine. <laughs> I mean, when you're in a band, that's actually true because the lead guitar is always trying to break oh, the yeah. amplifier. That bastard. <laughs> <laughs> no. I was, I've been in a couple of bands and it was always yeah. like the sound guy would come out of the booth on the breaks and be like, please tell the guitar player to turn it down. And I'm like, could you? Yeah. Could you tell him? Because <laughs> he ain't going to listen to me. Um, so Chewie, you, um, you're an actor, not uh -huh. like outside of improv, you have an extensive background in performing arts, um, mm -hmm. but also an extensive background as an improviser. Mm -hmm. Um, how do you feel about this idea of change? Like the, the broad idea, like when people talk about, um, embracing change or dealing with change or whatever, how do you feel about that? Or what does that bring up for you in a sort of general way? Well, in general, I, I'm for change. I think it has to happen. Uh, it, huh. it often scares the hell out of me when something changes, for sure. Uh, and I mean, if you just want to talk about something as loose as improv, when I when I lived mm -hmm. in Austin before, you know, uh, there was like five troops in town. 
When I came mm-hmm. back seven years later, there was more like 30 or 40. And now there's upwards of like 200 troops in town. I mean, I don't know what COVID's going to do to all that, but there's a lot of people actively playing in the city of Austin. And so that kind of change was kind of a shock to me. I was like a goldfish thrown in a new tank, you know, and uh, I had to learn how to acclimate. And uh, it, it was scary. It was really scary, especially being a little older now, you know, and knowing things and, know, and knowing I'm going into situations where I'm going to have to be very humble until people realize who the fuck I am. I'm sorry. Can I say that? Oh my God. Yeah, you can actually. Oh, okay. Good. <laughs> I'll, just flag, I'll just flag it. Yeah. I, I won't, I won't, I won't say anymore if I can help it, but uh, people not knowing who I am, you know, and uh, it, um, it, it, it was hard. It was really, really hard. Cause I had established myself pretty well when I left town mm-hmm. and I had established myself in San Antonio when I left for there. And then I had to start all over again. So that was like, very severe change for me and seeing how welcoming mm-hmm. everybody was and how like nice everybody was in town yeah which has changed a little bit it's not quite as nice as it used to be but but th- that was something completely foreign to me if you were doing improv in this town in the late 90s uh, like early 2000s you wanted nothing more than to be the person who gets picked for that hbo showcase and to hell with mm-hmm. your friends like like you don't care if anybody else gets it it was a dog eat dog thing for stage time too and mm-hmm. you know well hopefully soon hopefully now we'll have a lot of stages in town we were lucky enough to have like five uh it yeah. just those kind of huge changes happened but this one happened so quick you know so I had to learn how to acclimate quicker and I think mm-hmm. I'm getting better about that you know uh yeah not, a, not I mean, as afraid of change as I used to be but I am definitely well, afraid of it sometimes that's good well, I, so you have a you have a big family ish um, big oh, yeah. family. You got a gaggle of of youngins. Although mm-hmm. is, you, your oldest is like all grown up. Basically. Seventeen. Yeah, yeah, he's seventeen. I didn't really feel old when he was sixteen, and now that he's seventeen, I feel old because it's like, oh my god, eighteen is right around the corner. He's an adult. Mm-hmm. He's not an adult. How in the world is he going to be an adult in the world? I feel like, as a parent, you worry that you haven't prepared them enough you know? Mm-hmm. And I grew up, I grew up in strife, you know, like my family was poor. I had a single mom and she was a teacher and we, we wanted for things. We weren't, we were poor, but we weren't the poorest. Uh, they don't understand strife at all. My wife and I have worked really hard so that even when we're having financial difficulties, they have no idea. Like, you know, like they have no idea how bad it can get. And yeah, I just worry that because they haven't ever like had something they haven't had loss really in their life. And I'm mm. worried about that for them. Uh, I mean, every parent worries about their kids. You always worry about your kids, but it's part of the job. Yeah. It's part of the job. I don't know that I will ever stop. And he's eight. He's going to be 18. My God. Ugh. He That's doesn't even drive wild. yet. He doesn't even drive yet. <laughs> well, we haven't had time to teach him, but still. Do, have you noticed that amongst your kiddos that one is more, flexible and adaptable than another yes yes absolutely yes uh my my oldest and my youngest uh are pretty staunch on what they will do and not do uh my middle kid if it's good for the family he'll change what he's doing and change for that like he's very good at that uh if we need somebody to do some dishes he'll do them if we need somebody to you know watch the little brother he'll do it you know the older one he's got his own agenda. He wants to do what he wants to do. And if it gets in his way, he gets, he gets angry about it, which is totally me coming through him. I got a bad angry streak and, and my wife does too. But um, 
Uh, but then the little guy, he's eight. And so he's eight in a family of, of a 17 and a 15-year-old kid. So he's kind of grown up by himself. Uh-huh. So he hasn't been told no a lot. I'm not going to lie. Like we kind of, <laughs> we kind of did that third child syndrome thing where we, uh, we just kind of let him go and see what happened. And he's super intelligent. He's fine. He's had more screen time than any child should ever have, but he's great. Like we're not worried <laughs> about it, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, 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 but he gets, you know, because he gets ignored, it, he does his thing. And when you try to change his thing, he's like, whoa, how dare you? <laughs> dare you come over here and try to change what I have established as a thing because of your your terrible parenting <laughs> you've, you've ignored me and now I've done this and you're trying to change it it's like yeah well sorry kid I but- often wonder you know most of the people who have been excited to come on this show have been like um fairly adaptable and uh, get excited about change a few have had this like more afraid of change perspective, mm-hmm. which, um, which it sounds like is in there a little bit for you, but yeah, I, but I can't help but wonder. Yeah. I, I can't help but wonder how much the whole like nature versus nurture um, conversation when it comes mm-hmm. to personality and psychology in general, I, I won, I wonder also how much, because I this show is sparked because of a conversation that I had with my stepdaughter who mm-hmm. really struggles with change that she change in general. It's like once one mm-hmm. thing happens one time, it's a, that's how it's supposed to be forever. Yeah. And um, yesterday we were having a what happens now every season we had the like horrible drama related to changing the shoes, the changing Ooh. of the shoes for the season changing of the shoes. She doesn't like to change her shoes. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No, she's like, yeah, she doesn't. Once she's wearing them, it's like, so now we're in sneakers and this is mm-hmm. a big, this is for the next week. We're going to be dealing her with her processing that she wants mm-hmm. to be wearing her sandals, but also it's 40 degrees out and raining. Got to cover like, the toes. They're not the right, not the right shoes anymore. Yeah. Um, And but she'll be processing that. We're indoors 99% of the time. So it's like, put on your shoes so we can go for a, a walk and get our fresh air and exercise mm-hmm. for the day, inmate. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> and and she's going to have like these melt for about a week. And then, then she's fine until yeah. next spring when we and have to do the changing of the shoes because the sneakers will be worn out and have holes in them. Uh. And... Because, you know, she wear, she oh, sounds wear like those she, shoes. Sounds like she just gets used to things, you know. Uh, and, and maybe that's the thing that I have, too, is that I get very used to a certain way of doing things. And I've got, I mean, everybody always says, I've got a little bit of OCD in me, for sure. You know, I need things a certain yeah. way. And uh, a lot of it goes to what my story is, honestly. A lot of that, the repetition yeah. of things. And then when things go out of whack, you're like, what is happening right now? Why is this a thing? And so you have to adapt to it. But I take forever to do that uh sometimes not every time but sometimes <laughs> i take forever to do that um well now is probably a great time so chewy um unlike most of my guests where i don't know what story they're about to tell <laughs> this is for me going to be more about the details than the broad strokes uh-huh. um but i um well, we'll talk about it afterwards. Would yeah, yeah, you sure. please tell us a story from your 
real life, a fork in the road moment after which things changed for you? Sure. So uh, I had worked, I'd worked in bars for about 20 years or so, and I established myself as a, you know, a, a, a person who was in the industry in town and was well known in that. And, uh, you know, with that, with that industry, you, uh, you it's, it's a lot of partying, you've got fast, fast money in your hand. And so you take the money and you have to decompress because you're dealing with people who are at their worst, basically. When people are in a bar, they are basically like their worst behaved selves. Uh, and so you're constantly dealing with that pressure and then you go get off and you just want to relax. So you drink and, you know, uh, or, or some people go to drugs. Uh, you know, it's a very, very, the industry is almost a gateway drug in itself. And, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I'd, I'd been going along and I'd been drinking and drinking and this 20 years of doing this, just like it was not a thing. I had, you know, two kids and then a uh, third and, you know, everything was going fine. I just was a, I was a drinker, you know, I never thought necessarily that I was uh, drunk or anything like that. I, I had this like superpower that I never, nobody could really ever tell when I was drunk. Like I, I always used to joke that, you know, when, when the aliens come down from the sky and challenge the uh, earth to the great drinking contest to save all of humanity, I will be that champion and statues will be erected in my honor, you know, because like I will have pushed off the alien horde. Uh, like, I, I mean, like I really, I, I had a head for, for alcohol and, uh, through that, uh, my my body decided I don't, <laughs> and so I uh, I uh, have cirrhosis of the liver, uh, which is uh, basically uh, your liver has so much scar tissue from damage that it's been done by alcohol that it can't function properly, and uh, a lot of people need a transplant when it comes to this sort of thing. Now the way I found out <laughs> uh, is a, is an interesting story. I was or I think it is uh, I was I tripped in a parking lot. I hurt my toe really bad and, and I, I thought I pretty much broke it. And so I went to have x-rays done and this doc in the, at a doc in the box, which is one of those like little urgent care places, you know, they're not really a hospital, not really a doctor's office. And uh, they prescribed me 6,400 milligrams of ibuprofen a day to take, which is an astronomical amount. It's, it's, it's way more than anybody should be taking. And, uh, you know, I started feeling kind of, kind of meh. I started getting uh, random nosebleeds, which were really strange to me because I hadn't gotten those before. And so I was like, I better go. I must be having like some serious sinus problems. I need to go to my doc doc and see what's going on. So I went in and I walked in and I talked to her. And like within about five seconds, she's like, I want you to go have a sonogram on your liver. You're very yellow. I can I can see it on you. Your eyeballs are yellow. Your skin is yellow, which is a, a, a symptom of, of cirrhosis. Uh, your body, uh, your body uh, gets jaundiced. Uh, because obviously you're not secreting the right things to your skin and you're not, your bilirubin level goes very high and uh, it's very, very dangerous. Uh, <laughs> so I did that day. I went and I had my, my sonogram done, you know, and it was around four o'clock and I have a habit of always going to watch Jeopardy at the bar, like with my buddies. Uh, old guy, old guy bar habit, you know, <laughs> everybody sit around and answer questions. Don't, don't say the last answer, damn it. Let, get ready to chance. Once the song's over, you can answer. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, we had rules and everything. And I, I was sitting there and I get a call and it's uh, like 30 minutes after my, my sonogram, I get a call from my doctor and I, I answered thinking it's the nurse saying, you know, everything's okay. She's just going to tell you, you know, 
take this, take that, whatever. And it's my doctor doctor. And she's on the phone. So that spooked me. And I was outside at this point on the phone. She tells me, you've got cirrhosis of the liver. And in my head, all I heard was, you're going to die. And it scared the living shit out of me. (laughs) Uh, Pardon my cussing again. But I went back in and I was just kind of stunned as I sat back at the, the bar. And I hadn't been drinking that day because she had told me to go get this liver sonogram. And I'm, I was stupid, but I'm smart enough to know that maybe I shouldn't be adding to this if it's going to be an issue. Maybe somewhere in my head I knew. Uh, I knew that this was, the, this was the time for the diagnosis. But uh, I was sitting there and I looked around and I looked at the bar. And like my first habit in any bad news would be to get a drink, like immediately and just drink it away. And I looked around and all the bottles and all the taps and all the drinks just disappeared. They were blurry. I couldn't see them because uh, I didn't need it anymore. I didn't need it. And I didn't want it anymore. I thought about my kids and I thought about them living with someone else as their father. And, and, and it, it made me sad, it made me really sad that they would tell good stories. They'd say how nice I was and how fun I was, you know, and that, but man, he, he really couldn't keep his booze. And so he died, you know, that's such a terrible story as opposed to my dad's, you know, here to, to toast at my wedding. Uh, you know, and so I quit right then I stopped and I never had another drink since then. It's been in almost four years now. And the only times I've had a drink were on accident. <laughs> there was one time we were in a bar in Oklahoma City that four drinks that were identical got sat down on the table. And the person serving the drink was very sure that that was the one without alcohol in it. I took a sip. It was alcohol. Freaked me the hell out. I, I had to leave the bar and go sit in the car and cry because I thought, you know, you've done all this work. You've done all these things. And now you, you drank. You blew it. You blew it. And knowing in my head I wasn't going to die from one sip of alcohol, but the taste, everything, it just sent me back to what that felt like and how much I miss it, honestly, you know? And I felt the warmth as it goes down your stomach like I I hadn't felt since I was like, you know, 19. So here I am now. uh, When I when I was first diagnosed uh, on my MELD score, which is the score that they use to uh, determine whether or not you need a transplant or not, I uh, they go it goes from uh, six to forty with six being normal and then 40 40 being you're going to die. No, you need to get a transplant immediately. I was at like a 36 on that. And so through, you know, a little bit of change of diet and not drinking at all and through medication and such, I've got my MELD score down to like an eight. Uh, So I'm a very bad candidate for a liver transplant right now because I don't need it. And I also, you know, I've, I've been journaling uh, now for a long time. I journal on, I put my stuff on Instagram and Facebook, uh, my daily journal uh, that is just for me. It really is. I do write it for me. But along the, lo- along the way, people have uh, started reading it. And I get a lot of calls and a lot of, uh, you know, messages from people who want me to talk to a family member for them about it or maybe they think they have a problem as well and so I've actually I've actually helped some people counsel them out of this nonsense it's a dark dark place to be and if you it, the best place to the best person to take you out of it is probably somebody who's experienced it especially who's living with the fact that they're probably going to die because of it like that will be the thing that killed me eventually is alcohol and I know that now didn't know it then I was having a great time <laughs> but yeah I wrote a I wrote a one-man show or one-person show excuse me one person show uh, 
about it and did it at a festival locally here and I plan to expand that and maybe tour it once everything calms down to colleges because uh, I think binge drinking is where it starts and there's a there's a road like you talk about that change and that road that you can take one road is you know you just drink in college and you leave it to that and then you have you know social drinking the other is you drink and you drink for the rest of your life and you know those people and it happens a lot of time when you get to that independence that like that free choice of what you want to do and also frankly it's built into your head for a lot of people this thing's at disease so yeah, I know, I know, I know. I'm sober, and uh, I'm very happy about that. Uh, I haven't had any alcohol in forever. I miss it. And you actually have been counting the yeah. days. What day yeah. are we on today? You have to ask me. That. As of this uh, recording. Uh, as of this recording, today is twelve. Uh, I'm sorry, thirteen thirty-five. So one thousand three hundred thirty-five days sober. Um, That's awesome. Which is which sounds like a lot. You know, it sounds like a lot of days, but. First of all, I'm still not caught up with how many years I was drinking. But second of all, I hear the, about these these alcoholics who now are like 15 years sober, 20 years sober, 25 years sober. And it just blows me away that they waited. They didn't come back to it at all. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't see myself being that way still to this day, which is why I know I have to keep like writing that journal. I keep thinking about it a lot because if I start thinking that eh, I can have a sip here or there. You know, it's not a big deal anymore. My liver's getting better. You know, let's give it a test and see how I do. I know that's just another, that's a, that's a way that I don't want to, I don't want to travel. I don't want to go down that road. It's going to be mm-hmm. a very, very hard road to get back from. Cause you also hear about people who've been 10 years, 15 years, 20, 25 years sober that slip up and start drinking again, which is even more astounding to me that, you know, mm-hmm. you would think this is like now you're in, in your, in your muscle memory. You don't even think about alcohol anymore. Well, that's not true alcoholics think about it all the time uh whether whether we like to or not sometimes it's kind of thrown in your face a lot but it is what it is well thank you sure thank you for sharing that story um i uh i think you know at this point you you do tell your story quite a bit so i don't know how vulnerable to tell your story that feels um particularly now that you're staging it which is exciting yeah you can go anywhere you want. Are you talking about a question to ask or anything? Just, I'm fine. I could talk about it. <laughs> I really um, well, mostly, I just want to sort of acknowledge the reality of sharing that. That's like, oh, you know, it's you. A, because it's an invisible thing. It's like, yeah. you know, if we're at a festival party, everyone's drinking around you. Not everyone, mm-hmm. right? Not well, everyone. We know though, a fair yeah. number, but like majority, majority mm-hmm. of people Absolutely. are drinking. And it's and it's invisible and it's unless we know you and you know and unless you tell the story and i i think that's one of the things that really strikes me about it like even even um you know smoking is easier to hide you know quitting smoking is an invisible mm-hmm. thing but it's just a lot less damn i mean i don't know it's everything yeah. will kill you eventually everything but but it's an invisible thing that you it's like you don't yeah. get an army of people with you on this it's you you're no, your yeah. army of people it, because you make your own choices and mm-hmm. you know if your choice is to drink then you know there are going to be consequences of your choices if your choice is to stay off of it there are other consequences there too that are good maybe or maybe even some bad ones who knows i don't know i don't know a bad consequence for not drinking i really don't 
but um, uh, but the consequences are there, and it's it's up to you to make the decision and to get your get your mental mental disease in check. Frank, frankly, you have a chemical imbalance probably if you're an alcoholic. They're they're pretty. The, the studies are coming out daily about more and more study about it and how it is a disease and it is genetic and it is you know something that you you have to fight. You have to actively fight. Some people mm-hmm. take medication for it, believe it or not, uh, like wow. to, to have an aversion to alcohol. Like if they have alcohol oh, in their body, they immediately throw up that kind of thing. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it is an invisible thing. You wouldn't look at me and know that I'm an alcoholic, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you can. Look well, at and more people. importantly, <laughs> I knew you when you were drinking and, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I never in a million years would have even identified you as a drinker, which was how you identified yourself as opposed to a drunk. Um, But like in a million years, I wouldn't have been like, oh, that Chewy, he's sloppy, like (laughs) never in a million years. And my memory of uh, some of that time was like, yeah, yeah, you were like, there was a lot of doctor's visits. There's a lot of like weird stuff happening. You were just trying to explain what was going on. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if a little bit, that diagnosis coming back was like, was there any level of relief in just knowing what had happened? Oh, wow. I've never, that's such an interesting question. Uh, I've never. Because I remember at that, that time, the sense of like hanging mystery of like, why am I getting why? nosebleeds? Yeah. 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 Uh, if I look back at it now, yes, I guess there was a relief. I mean, I'm glad I'm where I'm at. Let's put it that, let me put it that way. I'm relieved now that I knew then and didn't actually die. So, mm. because if I had kept going, like I was going, I had a year, they told me flat out. They're like, you will die in a year if you keep drinking this way. And they, everybody said, I'm your alcoholic. Says, they told me the same thing. You know, they do say that because it's true. It's, it's true. true. If, if you keep going that way, you're going to die. And the one thing I've learned about this, about through all this for sure, is that you trust your doctors, you trust your nurses, you listen to them. They know what they're talking about. Uh, and, and yeah, now that I think about it, I, I guess, I guess I do now have a relief at the time. I probably didn't realize it at the time. My life was crumbling because I thought that my life was alcohol. I thought I was defined by it. I mm-hmm. thought that's what made friendships. I thought that's what kept my family together. Like it was, it was the glue that was my life. So mm-hmm. at the time it was not a relief at all. It was more like, how, how am I going to give this up? How in the world am I going to give this up? And come to find out it wasn't that hard for me. And that's different. That's very different. And I don't ever brag about that because I, I, I feel for the people that can't do it. that can't see it. Can't see it. I mean, you know, I lost a, I lost an uncle to cirrhosis of the liver uh, or to alcoholism. However you want to, to be fair, I, I, it was a step uncle. I wasn't close. The Mm, only, the only part of the story for me was like, it was like this conversation between the grownups about like, oh, Tom, you know, has mm-hmm. this diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I have an uncle named Tom, you know, like that was, <laughs> yeah. but also, I hear you. but then, but then it was like, oh, he, within three months, he was yeah. of getting that diagnosis. He it was gone because quickly. his choice was the opposite of your choice. So, and yeah. I think, and I think this happens, people get the diagnosis and they choose to speed up the process by getting Some do. more Some do booze for sure. in. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you're already down on yourself so much as an alcoholic. And then they tell you, you've done something that's going to make you die and you feel stupid and you feel useless and you feel mm. uh, like an idiot. And the one thing that you do when you feel that way is you drink to feel better or to hide the fact that you're feeling that way. You know, it's so funny. You were talking about, you, you know, you had a, you had a, uh, the family talking that's, there's no other time where people like, like if I'm, if I'm an alcoholic, I'm, I'm drinking, we're just drinkers together. Right. And you're like, Chewy is so much fun to drink with. My God, we yeah. have the greatest time at the bar. Then they die or they get sick and people are all of a sudden like, oof, saw that coming. Man, that guy really had some problems. Oh man. Yeah. He couldn't stop. You hear that all the time. And it's like, well, you know, it may have been hard for you and it's not your responsibility to tell them, but maybe you should have spoke up. Maybe you should have told your friend or your family member that you're worried about them, you know, yeah. rather than now looking back and acting like you had some sort of foresight that they didn't have because yeah. they don't have any foresight. They're not looking, an alcoholic's only looking to their next drink, flat out. Uh, I, I hate to admit this because, you know, I love you and I enjoyed our time together teaching, but really I was, I was teaching to get to the drink. I was there because I had to be for money and I liked it and it was fun, but really what my, my motivation in the back of my head was always a drink. You remember at those, those after lunches or whatever we would do, I'd have a yeah, drink every time. After class, after class, we would go to the brewery and have a mm-hmm. beer. A shot of uh, beer usually for me. Like, and uh, I quietly would do it. Nobody would really notice. And, nobody ever notices yeah. is the thing well with you nobody noticed nobody noticed and the truth is that a lot of people don't notice a lot of that stuff because everyone's mm-hmm. so worried about their selves all the time you know There's like that. you know that brewery had barbecue and people are like what sandwich am i getting and also mm-hmm. i have all these thoughts about my own performance in improv class mm-hmm. and nobody's like what's chewy drinking right exactly and even if they were i'd be so good at hiding it like alcoholics yeah. feel shame at all times. Most alcoholics know they shouldn't be doing it. And because you know, you shouldn't be doing it. That whole child with a, like trying to open the cookie jar thing comes into your head where you're like, well, I don't want anybody thinking bad about me or I don't want anybody catching me doing this. So I'm going to do it on the slide. That's why Mm -hmm. alcoholics drink alone so much. You know, Mm. I used to have a bottle Mm. of, of rumplements in my freezer at all times. And I'd go to the, go to the kitchen, have a shot. Uh, And that's after having been at the bar already for hours and hours, like, probably eight shots in plus a couple drinks and then go home and still, and still pour myself triples with doing, you know, shots. And I wouldn't stop until I just kind of would fall asleep, but, or pass out. I imagine your relationship with your family has changed in a super significant way. Yeah. Based on this life change. Well, with my sons, especially, uh, it has changed quite a bit. Because I was, I look back at it and I get a lot of credit for being a really good dad, but I really haven't been a very good dad except for the last maybe three years. I don't remember much of their, the older ones upbringings, honestly. And it's kind of sad. I have a point in my, in my play where I talk about the fact that I don't remember any of their births. The Mm. first one, because I was drunk. The second one, because uh, it just happened so quickly and I was probably hungover. You know, like he was 30 minutes, we were at the hospital, he was there. And then the fourth one, I was definitely drunk because I was up drinking with my father all night before the induction at 4 a.m. And uh, <clears throat> and so I don't remember their births. And I actually apologized to them in the play. And uh, Have you apologized and, to them in real life? Yes, yes, for What sure. did they do with that? Like, what do kids do with that? How did they process that? I don't think they understand it yet. 
but I think when they get older and they see how many friends of theirs have the same thing going on in their house and the parents don't apologize for it, you know, they'll realize that I really did mean it and I do mean it and I feel awful about it. Also, they read my, they read my journal. I mean, they know, Mm. they know what I'm thinking almost at all times about this thing. So I'm very open about it. I I don't know how it's, I, I mean, I hope it affects them where they don't like do the opposite of what your parent does kind of thing, you know, like they go right. the other way. Cause I'm not puritanical about it. I've told them flat out, if you want to drink, that's fine, but know that you need to be careful. You need to watch how much you're drinking. And I've also told them, know that if I see a problem, I'm going to tell you, like, yeah. I'm going to tell you you're drinking too much. Mijo. Like you need to stop. One of the things that you said before uh, sharing the story was that you, um, a little bit your feelings about change have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I tell you what, uh, I'm a lot more open to things than I ever was. I'm still very opinionated about things that I like and I don't like. And I'm very, yeah. very critical of movies and plays and improv, especially. I can't watch it a lot of times. <laughs> I just can't because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm being way too critical the entire yeah. time. I'm, I'm, more, I'm more open to listening than I ever was before because I can hear finally, you know, mm. I think before I was so cloudy in my head that it didn't make any sense to me. And I stuck to what I wanted to, wanted to believe. And if I tried to change from that, it meant that I was showing weakness of some sort or they were going to find me out. So mm. I stuck to it. I stuck to my guns about things and uh, maybe to, I mean, to a real asshole point of view uh, point, honestly, I was, I was kind of a prick uh, when I was younger, especially. So <laughs> Uh, I think I'm a lot nicer now. Maybe that's that. Maybe that's what's nicest about me changing is I'm nicer. <laughs> mm. uh, I mean, I thought you were nice before, but I, I definitely know. have noticed a softer quality to you over yeah. the last three years, um, yeah. including uh, like manic manicures and pedicures and and like oh yeah more adventurous things. And I don't remember you being a sneakerhead before. Oh um, wow, yeah, I, I always have been a sneakerhead, but not not uh, practicing. <laughs> you know, you you know, as an alcoholic, you you or as an addict of any sort, you try to substitute something for for that that habit because it is just yeah. a habit. A lot of times for people, you just get into the groove of it, and that's just what you do, and you don't think about it any other way. Well. Uh, yeah, I have like 60 some odd pair of sneakers now. And that comes from two things. One is that uh, I enjoy it and it keeps me busy, you know, to look at shoes and that kind of thing and figure out what I would like. And two, because when I was a kid, I was poor and I was on the basketball team and I couldn't afford the sneakers that the other guys had. And I used to make fun of it for it. You know, my mom, even on a teacher's salary, like I had to get the, the ones that they sold there at the school that were usually like some really cheap brand. And, yeah. uh, and my mom would usually be on like a payment plan for $35, you know, like she'd, she'd be like trying to pay the coach $5 a month or something like that. And so I never had them. And then I got money. I got a little bit of money and now I can afford a pair of shoes. And if I want to buy them, I do, if I can afford them at the time. And if I, I like, I bought a pair when I was in Portland, when I saw you, because yeah. Portland is so close to the headquarters of Nike. And yeah, we uh, got Nike, we got Adidas. Oh, I know. I wanted to go. I wanted to go to the Nike. I wanted to go to the Nike uh, store so bad when I was up there, but I did end up getting a pair of nice Air Force Ones that I still wear to this day. Uh, and I remember they're from Portland because one, they're green, but two, they've got like a little pine tree on the sole, on the inside sole. It's uh-huh. really cool. I'm hoping it never rubs <laughs> off. But uh, 
but yeah, uh, that, that there's that. And what was the other thing you said? Uh, sneakers and oh, manicures. The manis yeah. and petties. You know that that happened as an accident, but yeah, definitely about like changing the way I I, I felt about it. I lost a lot of weight by by not drinking anymore and because my body was so swollen and full of liquid because my body couldn't process the liquid through, through my liver uh like i lost a ton of weight i lost almost 100 pounds which i've gained back like a lot i don't want to talk about how much i came back but um, uh, but life is a roller coaster uh, so I started, ride. I started getting to wear clothes that, yeah exactly i started getting to wear clothes that i really liked more you know and you know as a big guy there's only so many things you can pull off and I started to be able to pull off other clothes that I've always wanted to wear. And so uh, I had done this 48-hour marathon at the Hideout Theater uh, where we eight of us were on stage for 48 hours. You've done it, haven't you? Or no? Um, no, I've I've only participated as an incoming group ah, to sort of gotcha. sustain the energy of the crazy yeah. eight. Um, yeah. But no, I would not. I don't think physically I could uh, endure 48 hours of nonstop performance. Um, I think my mm-hmm. joints and my body would rebel. And yeah. the other thing that happens when I get really tired is I get dizzy. So I think I would fall mm. and get hurt. That's not good. Yeah. 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 You probably shouldn't do it. So and I've see, never okay. done it. I've always, but, that's okay. but I've always wanted to, I've always, it's like, it's such a, I mean, I, it's a weird boast to have that like, Oh, I yeah. stayed up 48 hours doing improv. It's like, why stupid? Uh, you know, well, but, you, but it's it was like you cheap. transcend the art form. Yeah. It's like your for brain. Me, for, yeah, I mean, I didn't. I don't know half of what happened in most of those shows. But yeah. e- either way, you talk about the physical uh, like drain on you. Yeah, like I, I was done, and that day I was just like in pain, like all over my hands, yeah, my feet, everything was in pain. And I was also I was diagnosed at this time, and I was going through my healing process. So I was I was hurting through the second marathon hard. Uh, the first marathon, I actually probably was going through a little bit of detox and didn't even realize it over the weekend. Oh, wow. But then yeah. but then afterwards, went back to drinking. Of course, first thing I did was go have a drink after the marathon the first time. Uh, but uh, my wife was going to get a manicure. And I was like, hey, they do feet, right? And she was like, yeah. I was like, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to get a foot like thing done, the pedicure or manicure, uh, pedicure. And so I did, and I didn't like that because I have neuropathy in my feet, which means your feet feel like they're asleep all the time. So it hurt. Yeah. It actually hurt. But then they asked me if I wanted to do my hands. And I was like, oh, fuck it. I'm here. <laughs> and, uh, God, I'm cussing so much. Uh, I'm here. Why not? And so they did it. And uh, she asked if I wanted any color. And I was like, well, maybe just like a rainbow on my nail because it was Pride Month, you know. Uh-huh. And then uh, my wife said a month later she was going back. And I was like, let me go. And then it was like full on gel set. That's so sweet. Well, well, Chewy, um, before we end our conversation, is there anything that you would like people to walk away from this conversation having learned sort of your last thoughts here on, on change? Yeah, I think the one thing that I've, I've learned about change more than anything is that you have to remain humble. You have to be able to, you have to be able to admit that you were wrong. You know, if if uh, if the change is for the better, especially you have to be able to give yourself to that and not feel shame about the fact that you were wrong. It's so easy to get bogged down in hating yourself because you made a bad choice, you know, and then the change doesn't really affect you like it should. Change should be a good thing when it all comes down to it. It should be something you look forward to. Uh, it should be for a, a a better purpose than what you're living for at the time. Uh, with alcoholism, you just, you, you got to give in. You got to admit it. You got to admit that you have the problem and you've got to be willing to ask for help. 
because I was not a person who asked for help much at all. I'm still not very good about it, but I needed it. I needed help bad. And I, when I did reach out, I realized there's some great people who can help you out. You know, they they know a lot more than you. <clears throat> you have to trust them, whether it be somebody from AA, if that's your thing, which AA is not my thing, but I still think it's a great organization and that mm-hmm. you, you can learn a lot from it. If it's just a friend who's been through it, like, you know, me, like I get friends who call me, uh, be ready to be ready to be humble and to admit that you're not, you're not as great as you think you are maybe. And that helps you get better because you have something to, you have something to strive for. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you being so open and sharing your thoughts today. And, you know, I am singing on the spot. I always enjoy it. <laughs> I always enjoy you, Chewy. I, I appreciate you showing up for this. I am so honored to have been a part of it. Chewy is a friend of mine. I'm incredibly grateful that when presented with the need to change, he did. We often talk about change as something we could do for fun. Tired of your hair? Change it. Or for our own betterment, tired of your job? Get a new career. But in some cases, betterment is about survival. According to the 2018 National Survey on Drug Use and Health, 14.4 million adults ages 18 and older had alcohol use disorder. We've lost a lot of Americans to non-preventable causes this year, but some causes of death are preventable. And an estimated 88,000 people, that's approximately 62,000 men and 26,000 women, die each year from alcohol-related causes, making alcohol the third leading completely preventable cause of death in the United States. If you or a loved one are struggling with alcohol abuse, I encourage you to seek help by contacting your local Alcoholics Anonymous, or you can call SAMHSA's National Helpline, also known as the Treatment Referral Routing Service, at 1-800-662-HELP. Thank you to my friend Chewy for sharing his story, and thank you for listening to The Changed Podcast. I'm Aiden Nepom, and I wish you the kind of experiences in life you're excited to tell stories about.